Thank you for joining a Tusk podcast on the topic of Trump and the justice calendar. My name is Seth Maskett. I'm a professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Obviously, the political system is very heavily focused right now on the Iowa Republican caucuses, which happen on Monday, January 15th. I wanted to talk about a potentially more interesting moment in this nomination cycle, which is the first week of March. So March 5th is Super Tuesday, in which more than a dozen states and territories will hold their primaries and caucuses. Thanks to winner-take-all rules in the Republican primaries and caucuses, Donald Trump may well clinch the nomination that week or shortly thereafter. However, the day before Super Tuesday, on March 4th, is when jury selection likely begins in the federal election interference case against Donald Trump. Uh, This is probably the first of four major cases against Trump to start, and also possibly the first to reach a verdict. It is totally wild to me that these trials are going on alongside the presidential campaign. It also seems to me like something that should have occurred before the presidential campaign. I know court trials go at their own pace. It's probably wrong to try and peg one to an election cycle. I'm wondering if there is a case for doing this here. Um, Now, despite what my grandmother believed to her dying day, I am not a lawyer, nor have I ever been to law school. Um, But I thought I would ask someone who has. So my guest today is Sam Kamen. Uh, Sam is a colleague of mine at the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law. Sam has been at the law school since 1999. He holds both a JD and a PhD from the University of California. His research interests include criminal procedure, the death penalty, federal courts, constitutional remedies. He's also one of the nation's leading experts on the regulation of marijuana, and he has advised leaders in several states, including Colorado, on legalization. So, Sam, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Seth. Sure. So I'll just start us off. Um, Over the past eight years, uh, we've seen a number of threats to the governing system posed by Donald Trump. Now, some of them have been just sort of simple deviation from norms and traditions, Uh, running for office while threatening to jail his opponents, attacking Gold Star families, etc. Others of these things have been clear violations of the Constitution and the law. And with the events of January 6th and the events that led up to that, we saw an actual attempt to overturn a legitimate election that included mob violence. So, I want to, what I want to talk about is uh, the way that the system has sought to protect itself. Um, and here's a question I'd like to pose to you just for starters. Do you think the political system or the legal system has done a worse job of constraining Donald Trump? Well, it's a great question. I think the, um, you know, as a lawyer and the representative here of the legal system, I'm going to blame you guys and the political system. But fair. Um, <laughs> you know, as you said, there's a sort of norm law divide here. And I think the legal system really got involved here only when the norms didn't do it. That is, you know, we are talking about someone who was twice impeached, uh, who was not removed from office. But, um, you know, in any other political moment, you would think this person would be toxic, right? That, be, you know, you mentioned several reasons we could list a thousand others. What we're sort of dealing with here, I think, is the legal system having to do this job because the political system has in that way sort of failed, right? Um, And uh, there are lots of people um, who would say, you know, these are political questions, not using the the sort of legal term, but the, you know, 
this is stuff that should be resolved by politics and for some people on the left and some people who are in prosecutor's offices, they're saying, well, we tried that a couple times. That didn't work. This needs to be prosecuted. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was just, just thinking about this question. It had me thinking that, I mean, there have been, in some ways, the political system has constrained him to some extent, but a lot of like the stronger constraints require some sort of bipartisanship. So, yeah. like, right, yeah, how many how many senators voted either time to impeach someone who had clearly committed impeachable offenses? Right. That right. The, the idea of bipartisanship. I mean, Nixon resigned because Republican senators went to him and said, you have lost the support of your party and the Senate. Those people no longer exist. Right. And um, there, there is no um, spirit of country above politics that would that might have resolved this you know it's hard to believe that senators going to trump would have done anything but they didn't and you know he he stuck it out and he won so he was right and they were wrong yeah i mean just think about like the system for impeachment and and, you know the actual process by which the senate could remove him and disbar him from future office i mean mitt romney was the only republican to vote for his conviction in the first impeachment trial and shockingly was the first senator of uh, the president's own party to ever vote uh, to, you know, to try and convict a president in an impeachment trial, like which suggests like this was probably never a very realistic bar that was going to be met. Right. I mean, this is this is not a great system for actually constraining presidents. Um, and, you know, uh, but but just like unlike, you know, what, what sort of struck me is like unlike in the judicial system. Where we've seen Trump's own appointees actually occasionally rule against him, particularly in the the, the stuff following the, the 2020 election, um, Trump's own party has basically always backed him in the political system. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to step into uh, onto your side of the street, but to be a Republican now means to support Trump, right? That the right. people who don't support Trump don't call themselves Republicans and vice versa. Um, you know, I mean, I think you made a really interesting point about I think Trump was genuinely surprised that his judges didn't deliver him the presidency again, right? That, yeah. what did I bother appointing all these people for <laughs> if we're not going to play along, right? I, I I think, you know, it is, and I'm well, not- he thought, he'd, he a, thought he'd rigged it, I think. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. I'm not yeah. going to be a, a cheerleader for the legal system, but the legal system in that regard did really well. I mean, they lost every single election case they brought, right? And um, they were brought by terrible lawyers in terrible ways, Um but nonetheless, like that part of the system held, right? Um, and, and you know, we can talk about sort of the generals and what they were talking about as well. But that part of the system, like Trump couldn't call out the army to stop a, a, a uh, an inauguration. He couldn't get his judges to stop uh, the, the election count, um, which is sort of why we saw the events of January 6th happen, right. because the other means available to him were sort of one by one being shut down. Okay. I'm going to move to another topic here, and this is just um, sort of the the whole nugget of this is about timing. Um, I'm struggling to think about the timing of the the court cases that are going on right now. So 2023 saw four sets of indictments against Donald Trump. There's two federal cases brought by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. There's one case in Manhattan, and there's one uh, going on in Fulton County, Georgia. At least according to some recent polls, uh, the verdicts in these cases might be important to Republican voters when they're trying to decide who to support um, in in the primaries and caucuses. So we can we can you know we, we might question that. Right? But, I, you, yeah. I, I, I don't want to step on your question, but do yeah. you believe that? Like people will say, "Well, look, 
I know he did this, and I know he said that, and I know he was indicted, but convicted? Whoa, that's a <laughs> that's a bridge too far. I mean, I, I, I've seen some of that same polling. I, part of me is like, well, I'm a law-abiding citizen, and I believe in innocent until proven guilty, so they'd really have to convict him before it changed my mind. I don't believe that's going to change a lot of people's minds. I, I am super skeptical about that. I, right. I, I'd say like a conviction uh, is probably already baked into people's public opinion, and it it's not right. going to change a lot of minds, and we'll be laughed off in the same way. Oh, that's right. just the, that's the swamp, right? Like right. that's right. That's the that's the the Democrats. That's Soros. Whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jews. So yeah. Jews. Globalists. We, I think we use the term globalist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, okay. But going beyond that, uh, perhaps more importantly than whether it would change Republican voters' minds, should Trump become president next year, he would have the power to slow roll or even end several of these cases. It's possible, however, that no more than two or even one of these cases will be resolved by the time of the general election in November, maybe even none of them. So the first of these cases uh, that's likely to come up, the federal election interference case, doesn't begin seating jurors, at least uh, uh, according to the current timeline, until early March, the week of Super Tuesday, by which point Trump may well have clinched the nomination. What I'm wondering is, is there a case for moving more quickly? Is there, uh, is there some history of sort of like ticking time bomb scenarios in which the criminal court system really needs to move more quickly because there's some sort of vital deadline? And if so, should it be doing that now? It's a great question. The, I, I would say the shortest answer is no. There is no ticking time bomb scenario. There is no, uh, yes, the rules apply, but not you know, with their full force, you know, the criminal justice system in the United States, and it's sort of the common law, um, a lot of it comes from the English common law, is really designed to make it very hard for the government to do bad things to its citizens, right? This is not um, sort of an easy back and forth between two parties and an impartial judge says, well, I've been listening and I think, you know, you made some good points, you made some good points, I'm, I've feel a little more inclined to this side than the other. The whole system is designed to make it very hard to convict someone and deprive them of their life, liberty, or property. Right? So what does that mean? It means you get a lawyer. It means that uh, you have the right to cross-examine witnesses. It means you have the right um, you know, to, to do an investigation, to have the uh, assistance of whatever um, experts you might need to, to uh, have an effective defense. All of that stuff takes time. If we're dealing with an indigent defendant, it would take a lot of money. And it's sort of designed to be a slow and, um, I would say, uh, what's the right word? It, it's not designed for speed. It's not designed for emergencies. It's designed to say the people are free. If the government wants to take away their freedom, we should make it extraordinarily difficult for them to do so. You mentioned jury selection. Jury selection has always been, or the the, the right to be tried before a jury of your peers has always been a really important part of that sort of uh, bulwark against state power. And imagine what jury selection in this case is going to look like. You say it's going to start in March. It might go on for months and months. It might go, you know, they might be able to do it in a couple of weeks. I, I don't know how many people they will have to impanel to um, come up with a suitable jury in a case like this. Will this be just a typical, like, a 12-juror panel like we, you know, we, we tend to see in the movies and on TV and the, each 
each side will have the opportunity to strike a certain number of people who they don't think will be neutral or they think would yeah, be so it's, it's, it's sort of like that. I mean, yes. So the short answer is yes. Okay. I don't know in that district how many uh, jurors would generally be seated in um, in a criminal case. The 12 is not a constitutional guarantee. It can right. be uh, a smaller number than that. Each side will have the opportunity to strike as many jurors as they believe are unable to follow the court's instructions and render a fair verdict, right? So that doesn't mean you've never heard of Donald Trump. That doesn't mean you have no opinion of Donald Trump. It just means that you can put those opinions and thoughts aside and follow the instructions that the court gives, right? So if someone says, look, I I voted against him, um, but I think I can be fair, the defendant will get an opportunity to say, can you really, let me run some hypotheticals by you. You know, can you imagine a scenario of this? Can you, and as many people as need be will be struck if they convince, if the one side or the other convinces a judge, this person cannot be fair and impartial. Hmm. In addition, as you mentioned, um, the tradition in American courts is to have peremptory challenges, that is challenges uh, not for cause, but for vibes, right? That uh, I, I don't, this person, yes, they meet the criteria, but I don't want them on my jury. Um, traditionally, there have been a set number of those for each side. I don't know this particular judge's um, uh, uh, usual practices, um, but we can imagine that some of those will be present as well. So, you know, in those ways, I think um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be quite a complicated endeavor to come up with a First of all, you have to find people willing to do this, and given Trump's willingness to uh, either dox or uh, certainly go after uh, public officials, and um, you know, we saw this with going after the the uh, clerk in this case. Um, people might say, you know, yeah, I meet the criteria, but I'm not willing to do it. Um, w- will a judge hold someone in contempt if they refuse to be seated? I, I find that unlikely. Okay, I mean, I. I very much take what you're saying here and I this and, and other times we've talked about this. Like I think my, you know, my initial instinct was that because this is so important, shouldn't it be faster? And I think you're, you, you very rightly say actually, because it's so important, it should be slower um, that the, every effort should be made to get this right. Um, so, you know, it stands the test of time and, and is, is not, you know, perceived as just kind of haphazard. I yeah. guess my, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, you know, this is a fraught question for every prosecutor who feels she has jurisdiction over this case, which is it's a terrible look to indict a former president, the opposition leader, essentially the head of the opposition party, uh, someone who clearly is running, has run, lost the last election. Indicting such a person really looks terrible, right? Sure. I mean, when we see this in other countries, I mean, how many times did we say that during the, the Trump years? But we see this in other countries and say, oh, opposition leader arrested or charged or, you know, it's a terrible look. And it is, I, I would say, is a thing that should be avoided almost always. Mm-hmm. The only question is whether is it a worse look for democracy to have a criminal, uh, unindicted, uncharged, um, free, running for president again. I, I am fairly certain that every prosecutor who has considered bringing such a case has weighed those two really poor outcomes and looks against one another, right? That, um, yeah, we should not be, you know, we all recoiled from lock her up, right? That we Mm -hmm. said, 
that is, you know, Banana Republic is is uh, too kind a, uh, a a an epithet to throw at something like that. He gets the opportunity to say, "Look, they all yelled at me, but look what they're doing to me. That's worse. I never did try to charge Hillary. I never did. I thought she was a criminal, but I let her go because I think that's good for democracy. They 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 are not returning that favor. Um, hmm. So I don't that re- argument does not resonate for me. But boy, <laughs> I understand why a prosecutor might want to dot every i and cross every t." before starting down this road. Sure. I mean, I think here's the part that, that, that I struggle with. I'm like, you've laid out some really good areas to struggle with here, but like I, my guess is normally, uh, you know, in any, almost any criminal criminal case, like, uh, the defense wants to delay things just because it draws out the costs. It makes it harder for them to prosecute. Witnesses disappear. Evidence is harder. Like delay is generally good, but in this case, delay means, the the defendant coming closer to having the pardon power, right? To actually being in charge of the executive branch, um, that sort of adds a wrinkle, no? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so look, I think the scenario you describe is true in lots of cases, but not all, right? So yeah. you can imagine if you are being held in jail pending trial, right? And that's true, I think, for a, a, a huge percentage of people who who are without the means to to free themselves. You want this trial pretty quickly, particularly if you think you have some chance of prevailing at trial. You don't want it drawn out. The people who want it drawn out, generally people with means, people who are um, free pending trial, who are going about their regular lives, um, they would like a trial date in 2030, right? That's fine with them. It it, it puts off any inevitable um, uh, punishment down the road. And for also, as you m- mentioned, witnesses disappear, their memories fade, Um but if you think you are going to be better off at trial or after trial than you are currently, you actually want your speedy trial rights to uh, be invoked and you want to sure. um, get to trial as soon as possible. You could imagine a person in Trump's situation, different person in Trump's situation <laughs> with different facts saying, I'm outraged by these charges. I want a trial date tomorrow so that I can show that I'm innocent. Um you know, this trial can happen soon enough for me. I want this resolved before the election so everyone knows I'm innocent. Okay. That is the opposite of the approach that he has taken. Right. This approach <laughs> has been, um, I want to be in charge when this thing actually happens so that I can undo it. And, you know, I think we, I, I think we are permitted to draw inferences from that approach. Fair. Um, so more generally, is it reasonable to think that Maybe the legal proceedings against Trump should have been concluded before the election um, or even before the Republican convention. Or should we really just not even be thinking about these calendars as, as being aligned here? Like, I, I know there was there's sort of some sense in which the justice system didn't do a whole lot about January 6th for like the first year after it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if just like in your mind, well, maybe they should have moved more quickly or this is about the pace at which these things would normally proceed. Yeah, I mean, so these are, you know, the charges that are being brought, I would say particularly the one in Georgia, are quite complicated. There are lots of witnesses. There are lots of, you know, there's lots of, we saw in the the January 6th commission, um, not the commission, but the, the um, at the, the hearings on, on the congressional hearings on January 6th, and the report that, that came from that, there's lots of electronic um, uh, data. There's lots of sort of GPS stuff. There's lots of text messages. There's lots of phone calls. All of that needed to be acquired. All of that needed to be thought through. Um, 
so, you know, I, I am sympathetic to the argument that, look, we just passed the third anniversary of January 6th. Why did it take two and a half years, essentially, um, to get to that place? I think some prosecutors might have been thinking, as I described earlier, I don't want to indict the opposition leader. Right. right? Can't he disappear? Can't he go away? <laughs> right. And and when it, I think that for good reasons as well, maybe as bad ones, the waiting was this feels um, bad for our country. I would like to not do this, but I will do this if I had to. And the indictment sort of came when prosecutors came to the conclusion, I have to because that party is going to nominate that person again, notwithstanding the relatively clear evidence that he is a criminal and has been a criminal while in office, since being in mm -hmm. office, and so forth. Okay. So, well, I guess that brings us to a next topic, that there is a pretty reasonable possibility that Donald Trump is sworn in a year from now um, as president as a convicted felon. And I'm just curious, do we have any sense what that looks like? Like, I mean, I'm, there, there's been something like this in other countries, but I'm like, I'm not really sure even how to conceive of it. So if, say, he's found guilty in Georgia, would there be any attempt to sentence him? Would that be ignored? Um, uh, what Can you give us just an idea of what kind of constitutional or other kind of crisis we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, we. so short answer, no. We have never <laughs> been anywhere near that uh, in our um in our politics, I mean, uh, you know, the and and you were, were right, I think, to single out the Georgia case where um, it's a state prosecution, and uh, I think, unlike the New York case, the likelihood of uh, a conviction and a felony sentence is much higher than in the New York case. I think we've large, we, we we've mostly stopped talking about the New York case. <laughs> that's that's probably for the best. Um, that's certainly the weakest of the of the mm -hmm. cases that have been brought so far. Um, so if in Georgia he is convicted of felonies and is awaiting sentencing or has been sentenced at the time of the election and wins the election, that is a constitutional crisis, right? And, and particularly if the judge in Georgia says, well, I don't care that this person has just been elected president of the United States. I'm going to sentence him to five years in prison or to whatever it is. And that person is president of the United States or is president-elect of the United States. I, who knows what happens then, right? Does he, on January 20th, 2025, um, you know, ask the U.S. Marshals to come free him or ask for the Navy SEALs to come bust him out? Who knows, right? right. I mean, that's you know, we're, we're now in sort of Harrison Ford movie uh, context. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I can certainly imagine a trial judge saying, look, I preside over your trial. You were convicted. After you were convicted or about the time you were convicted, the American people um, elected you president. I am not going to stand in the way of you being um, sworn in. I will sentence you and I will hold that sentence in abeyance while you're president. But as soon as you're done being president, you come back here and serve your time. You know, we can, we can, it, it's like science fiction at that point, right? Like we can all sort of tell a story about how we think that would go. But yeah, the U.S. has certainly never seen anything like that. Yeah, and that would be, I, I already am extremely skeptical that he would serve a term and then say, well, that was fun being president, I'm now going to retire, <laughs> as opposed to challenging the whole, you can't serve more than two terms thing. Um, and if there's sort of like a prison sentence waiting for him once he leaves office, uh, there's, there's extra incentive there. Oh, absolutely, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, that that's sort of the, the nightmare scenario for democracy, and I think a judge sitting in such a case would 
humble herself and say, okay, we, we did our thing, but the American people saw that, reacted, and, you know, that they've spoken. Wow. Okay. I want to pivot slightly to talk about the, uh, the court cases uh, involving actually uh, uh, striking Trump from the ballot in several states. So early next month, uh, the Supreme Court has announced it's going to hear arguments about the Colorado Supreme Court case that disqual- disqualified Trump from the state's primary ballot um, uh, under Article, or excuse me, Amendment 14, Section 3 of the Constitution. Yep. Um, my guess is they'll they'll likely rule pretty quickly since Colorado's primary is on March 5th. They could say a lot of different things, right? They could disqualify Trump everywhere. I'm guessing that's pretty unlikely. They could say that Colorado and other states may disqualify him if they so choose. They could say that the 14th Amendment doesn't actually apply to the presidency, they could, which a Colorado judge has previously held. They could say January 6th wasn't actually an insurrection or that Colorado can't tell a party who to keep on or off their their, ballot, their primary ballot. They could say there has to be a conviction first. There's a lot of things they could rule. Yep. Um, do you have some sense what we're likely to see? Like what sort of a ruling would make sense to you? Well, your grandmother would be very proud. That was, that was an excellent <laughs> legal analysis. Um, I, I think you really highlighted a lot of the issues here. I mean, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is a law professor's dream, right? Because <laughs> as, as you just sort of uh, laid out, there are lots of odd questions and drafting issues. Why is pre- Why are president and vice president not listed among the offices uh, from which a person is disqualified or which, having previously served in that office and taken an oath, you're not eligible for another federal office, right? They list a number of federal offices, but not president and vice president. Why? I think part of it might be they could not imagine the people of the United States electing someone as president or vice president. The only elected office is the people. The whole people get to vote on. They couldn't imagine the nation as a whole choosing an insurrectionist. And therefore didn't feel they needed to list it. They could say, well, it's covered under officer of the United States, the sort of catch-all term there. And then there's, there is statutory and historical context on both sides there. I, I, I don't know what the United States Supreme Court is going to do. I am disinclined to believe they will say um, what Colorado said, which is Section 3 applies to a president and disqualifies this person. Um, because there was an insurrection and there doesn't need to be a trial and, you know, sort of on and on and on the number of boxes you have to tick to disqualify Trump from this office is a lot of boxes. And if any one of those boxes is not ticked, he can run. My sense is they will either say this is not justiciable. This is for each state to determine, or they will say, no, Colorado is wrong. Um, in some ways, saying no, Colorado is wrong is the um, might be the best for democracy. Again, we're we're sort of in this this new world where we can't figure out what which of bad scenarios for democracy is worse. Um, but I think if Colorado were to disqualify Trump, and if Maine um, the the Maine, Maine wasn't a judicial decision, it was the decision of the Secretary of State. If those are upheld and the litigation against Trump and other states goes on. We've already seen states that are going to say something like, well, Joe Biden is aiding the invasion of uh, our southern border, um, making him ineligible, so we're going to kick him off our ballot. And then, you know, if we have a national election where 
one party's candidate isn't on the ballot in 20 states and the other can party's candidate isn't on the ballot in 18 states, that just looks horrible. And I think that <laughs> that really makes us question, you know, the the future of the of, of democracy in this country. I sort of like the idea, though, what, like if, if the only place both candidates appear on the ballot is like Arizona and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and we just pretend like the election, like that's actually a good way of sort of calling out the whole, the whole swing state, non-swing state thing. Right. And just say, yeah, you guys didn't matter anyway. So <laughs> right. this so, is where we're doing yeah, the campaign. It would sort of be interesting. I know there is litigation happening in Michigan. Like if one party, if one candidate so far, you know, well, I guess Maine is sort of a swing state. Um, you 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 would know better nine ish, um, yeah. right? Like, it, it Trump was not going to win Colorado, right? Right. A ruling in a state that was going to be close and big enough to matter would really be something. I mean, that is a decision that might swing the election. You know, again, that's weighty and the sort of thing a court should or a secretary of state or should engage in only under the sort of clearest of circumstances as the four to three vote in Colorado and the Colorado Supreme court indicates, these are not clear circumstances and reasonable minds can certainly disagree about this. You know, it's, it's, um, a thicket. Hmm. Okay. Um, so that's basically the questions I wanted to run through. Is there anything I should have brought up that you would like to mention here? (laughs) Um, See, I'm just looking through my notes. Um, no, I mean, you know, the first question you ask is, you know, are your people to blame or my people to blame? <laughs> right. um, and I was actually really proud of the way lawyers and judges came out under Trump, that Trump judges voted against him. Very few reputable lawyers were willing to make the kind of asinine claims he wanted made in a lot of places. And we see, as a result of that, the disbarment and other sort of ethical problems that the poor lawyers who brought his terrible claims are, are currently experiencing, right? Um, and that is, in my mind, the system working, the legal system working. Um, there are certainly new challenges to that system, both of lawyers and judges, brought by the current um, cases, but the the two different kinds we've discussed: the um, criminal case against cases against Trump, and the uh, eligibility cases that are you know now um, spreading throughout the country. Um, it, that is not to say that we can expect the legal system to save us. I don't think it will. Um, you know, I I. Um, Part of the problem here is that Trump has been revealed to be a person who, and I will speak just for myself, ought not to be in charge of uh, a small town, let alone <laughs> the biggest, most powerful country in the world. And our polarization has led to a place where that does not matter. And in fact, where the worse he is and the more sort of flagrant he is in his violation of norms, the more he is loved by 43% of the country. Um, so I don't mean to put that on you personally, Mm. (laughs) um, but it's your fault and not ours. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's, uh, and fair, but like, and there are parts of this that are about like institutional design and things like that. There are also parts of it that are simply about voters. 
Yep. And the fact that, and you know, echoing what you were just saying, that like, you know, just judging from like public opinion polls over the past year, the single best thing Trump did for his campaign was to get indicted. Um, right. And that, that has that has only helped him, uh, yeah, at least within his party. Founders, I, I don't think that's what the founders had in mind. Right? Well, I mean, voting was a whole like yeah, they, they, sure they even wanted that, that either. But, right? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, so it's interesting, right? The founders made a list of the things that would make a person ineligible to be president, right? You had to be thirty-five. Um, you had to uh, be born a, a citizen of the United States. You could be a, a naturalized citizen. Um, you know, there's that thing about people from two states, and there's you know, uh, there there are a list of again boxes that had to be ticked before you could become president. Why didn't they say anyone convicted of a felony, right? And and at the founding, conviction of a felony was was pretty severe, right? The sort of civil death of a person, uh, they, they might uh, be sentenced to, to life, they might be executed, they might, you know, very severe punishments associated with being a felony. Uh, being a felon, why didn't they say and never convicted of a felony when listing the the requirements to be president? Right. My guess is they didn't think they had to. Right. Um, and, you know, with the passage of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, they fixed part of that. But the part they fixed dealt with a very small range of convictions um, for, you know, only certain people. Right. That you can engage in insurrection so long as you hadn't previously taken an oath. Right. <laughs> right. It's right. Like, so if you just showed up at the people who showed up at the Capitol, all of them can be president if they're 35 and, and born, you know, born citizens. Because they didn't promise they wouldn't have an insurrection. Because they didn't promise yeah. they wouldn't. Have, right. Which is sort of a, a strange, um, a, a strange way to, to, to run a democracy. But, um, you know, I think there was some understanding that, yeah, we can, tr- well, not at the, not at the time of the founding, but, it, with the passage of the 14th Amendment and, and since, okay, some people we have to say they can't do it, but we'll trust the system to sort of eliminate the, the others. And what we're seeing is, <laughs> unless Section 3 prevents it, the only thing that will prevent it is people not choosing someone who led an insurrection against the last election. Right. And that's where we have to put our confidence. How are right. you feeling? <laughs> awesome. Good. Okay. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much. Is there some place people should be following you or your work? Uh, let's see. I'm a pro- prof. Sam Kamen on uh, the thing formerly known as Twitter and on Blue Sky. <laughs> Come follow me on Blue Sky. Don't follow me on Twitter. I don't post there. Awesome. Cool. Folks, that's our show. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, please be sure to follow the Tusk Substack at smotus.substack.com. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Seth. All right, take care.